this week on Dig Me Out. She won't even look my way. In a word, I'm a dog, and it chills me to the bone. All I want is just to walk With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, we've got a supersized episode. We're doing a lot of stuff. This is a busy episode. We can't even really talk up front about how much we're doing. We just got to do it. It's going to be tight, compact, yeah. action-packed. We're going to get it done. So we got three <clears throat> things going on here. One, it's a Patreon episode, which means one of our patrons is joining us to talk about it. It's an interview. We've got musicians, people who made music, Jay, are joining us to talk about the wow. music that they made. And we're giving away a prize. Damn, too so, much. I can't take it. Enjoy your next four hours with us, folks. Uh, it's gonna be no. <laughs> we're not gonna. This will not. This will not be a one of our our classic uh, two parter four hour episodes. Uh, we're gonna keep this tight up front. Number one, Brandon Trammell, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Tell us the album you picked. Well, last time I picked something I didn't really have a lot of attachment to because I think I was a little afraid of uh, you guys not liking it. And uh, this time I just wanted wanted to go kind of balls to the wall and pick something that I really loved. So I chose This Will Be Laughing Week by Ultimate Fake Book. Excellent. And of course, um, you know, we love to talk to folks who made the records that we talk about on the show. As you know, over the past seven years, we've had a lot of folks on. And we've had a lot of people that have been on our shortlist. Like, we'd really like to talk to them about this record. And it just so happens, through the magic of Facebook, you know, say what you will about it's destroying democracy. But we really enjoy the fact that we get to meet our, uh, you know, meet up with musicians that uh, made records that we really enjoyed and talk to them about them. So joining us from the left coast, uh, I don't know where, somewhere over there. Could be Seattle. It could be San Francisco. (laughs) We didn't get into the details um, from Ultimate Fate Book and other things that they have been involved with. Bill McShane and Eric Moline. Eric, Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, thanks for, for having us. us. So I'm awesome. gonna I'm gonna put this on you guys. Then um, we have to give away a pair of headphones, and um, I think what we were gonna do it is uh, I need a number. So, six six six. No, no, that won't work. <laughs> so I gotta explain. Studio has been uh, a supporter of the podcast. They're a great company out of Sweden. They make great headphones and earphones. We are fans of both the Regent and the Trey uh, products that they make, and they have gifted us a pair of Regent headphones. Everybody who was signed up by Patreon last night, as of our recording this. Um, is eligible to win, which means there's 40 people who are eligible to win. So here's what I want. Bill and Eric, I want you to huddle up <laughs> somehow. Pick a number between 1 and 40. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're, we're huddling. Huddling? I think, I'm... <laughs> I think I think I've got it. It's okay. a nomination of, of six six six. Okay. <laughs> are, What's you, are you picking it, Eric? <laughs> Twenty two. Twenty two. That means 
our winner is Eric Peterson. Nice. Who has been on this show. He has probably won stuff before. I'm going to take him off the list. He can no longer win anymore. <laughs> Congratulations to Eric Peterson. You're, you're going to be getting a pair of headphones from studio. Thanks, Very guys, cool. for, for indulging our uh, our contest here. Um, that was exciting. If anybody wants to pick up studio headphones, they can use our dig- discount code DIGMEOUT. That's 15% off in the month of May of uh, a purchase from studio that's studio.com and then of course you can follow him on facebook twitter pinterest and instagram all right let's talk about this record this will be laughing week when did this record come out was it 1999 or wasn't there okay i'm i'm trying to re- i'm trying to do my uh from memory but i i believe this came out twice am i right guys yeah. <laughs> yep, that is right. Okay, can you can you give us the backstory uh, on that? Yeah. Um basically we released it on a independent label out of Lawrence, Kansas first. Um the label was called Noisome Records. And I think that first version came out, I believe, nineteen ninety nine. Okay. Does that sound right, Eric? Yeah, I think it was ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, so it was a, just sort of a local regional Midwest uh, release. And then we got signed by Sony Epic 550, um, you know, like, I don't know, maybe six months or eight months after that. And so in July of 1999, or no, July of 2000, um, it came out on the major label. Okay. So it was two extra songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two extra songs and a, a fresh new mastering job, new album artwork. But the recordings are um, exactly the same, except for those two new songs, which are uh, re-recorded versions of songs from our first record. Gotcha. Brandon, which songs yeah. are those? Uh, the songs that were re-recorded were um, Far, Far Away and Downstairs Arena Rock. And I personally okay. cannot stand the re-recorded versions. I think they suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a purist, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I, I really like the original versions, but that was something the label, um, he, the guy that signed us really liked, you know, the first record too, and just was basically like, why don't we just, you know, put some great songs from the first record on there too? And so we narrowed it down to a couple that people, everyone sort of dug and, we did it, but the thing was, was just re-recording them. I don't know. I don't feel like we, you know, we, we didn't, it's hard to recapture magic, if you will. You know, I'm sure you've heard of that millions of times from other sure. bands. And it, I think that absolutely was the case for us. Like I, so I personally don't really enjoy, I always skip over like if I'm listening to the record or something, or I see it, you know, I skip over those songs. So that's me. <laughs> so Brandon, let me ask you, when did you get this record? Did you get the original re- release or was, was it the, uh, the Epic version? Like I have, I do not have the, I'm sure the original version, which is uh noisome is probably more rare than the Epic release as far as people owning a copy. So when did you, when did you pick this up? Um, actually it's kind of a, one of my favorite stories. Um, back in, uh, in the prehistoric days of touring before cell phones and before Bluetooth, <laughs> 
um, when you went on the road, you got you only got to take a few CDs at a time. Otherwise, you'd have a whole van full of CDs. So my band, <clears throat> excuse me, had a rule that we could take two records with us, two CDs apiece. But anything we bought while we were on tour was fair game. So I think I was in Salt Lake City. It was probably late 99, maybe early 2000. Um, and I just happened to see the record. Uh, I had seen the band open for the Get Up Kids in Detroit uh, about a year before, probably. Um, and I thought, I'll give it a shot. It was like five bucks. And it became the soundtrack to that entire tour. It, it was listened to every day cool. for about six weeks. That's Excellent. Awesome. Jay, when did cool. you, I know you had the album. When did you pick it up? Well, we played with the band, so I think it was about that time, wasn't it? Yeah, Around I was going to get into that, but yeah. Yeah, we yeah, actually so played think, two shows. Yeah, and I don't remember if this was the record that was out then, but... It would have been, yeah. It, yeah, so yeah, that's when I picked it up. Oh, cool. Yeah, there what, was what sh- band were you in? Uh, we were in a band called the Stepford Five, which um, out of Columbus, Ohio, and we played a show with you guys oh, yeah. in Cleveland... There was another band called Mars Electric on the bill. And I think the other band, there was four bands. And one of them was Wish, which was that band that Keith was friends with, our lead singer. And I think we got to talking to you guys. I don't remember the exact scenario, but you were playing Columbus like a month later with Hot Rod Circuit. And there was no opener. So we were like, hey, (laughs) it's our town. We're, We're opening for you guys. And so... Yeah. Um, yeah. So we ended up opening that show. It was at Bernie's in uh, Columbus. And, oh yeah. Uh, yep. That was um that was a big deal because I remember talking. I, so I played bass and I remember talking to Nick, and he was changing his strings like before the gig, and I was in awe because I was like, "So how do you like? I change my strings like once every six months." And he's like, "Oh, I I change them like." <laughs> all the time because i have a endorsement or something like that and i was like what like that i couldn't believe that <laughs> right so uh yeah yeah we- no i i have a i have a story that's really similar when we first went on tour with the get up kids you know you mentioned the get up kids and we played with them in philly and it was mind-blowing how many kids showed up and they we actually had to do two shows that night because there were so many kids uh, like unexpectedly just did an extra show. And I just was in awe because Matt Pryor was changing his guitar strings between the shows. And I was like, Whoa, you, you can, he's like, Oh yeah, I change them before every time we play. And I was like, it, so it was exactly the same kind of thing. I was like, Oh, like a light bulb went off. Wow. <laughs> wow. You could do that. I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you just but changed you just, them when they break. Them on there until they broke and yeah. got rusty. <laughs> right. Just keep playing. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so, so it was interesting in revisiting the record now and I know, um, ask Jay and Brandon for their feelings on this as well, but you know, I'm a much more seasoned listener now as far as picking mm-hmm. up on influences and, and, you know, I can hear like a, a guitar riff and be like, Oh, I, now I kind of get where maybe the influence was on that. And I'm curious as far as, um, you guys, you know, what you were listening to when you were younger and, and maybe earlier in terms of, um, you know, what music you got into that you discovered or, or were practicing guitar or um, drums too. And because now when I listen to the record, I obviously heard, you know, a lot of what was going on around the time. But now when I hear the record, I hear 
Um, there's some stuff that might be influenced by uh, 80s, uh, like metal or rock that I didn't mm-hmm. maybe pick up on at the time. <laughs> and, and I'm curious if you guys had any uh, background in, in, in that sort of scene. With regards to Were you guys childhood. alive in the eighties? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody who 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 was admits it. So yeah. Yeah. No. Um, totally. We we absolutely admit it. And I and I promise I will let Eric talk. <laughs> but I was just gonna say it's like, you know, it's an interesting question because if you really think about it, and I'm sure any all of us can say this, you guys as well. You know, it's like we all listen to so much music just in general. But what music is the music that finds its way into your actual songwriting once you actually start making songs, you know? Right. And so, yeah, we, we grew up loving rock and roll, 80s pop, metal, you know, all that shit. And then eventually went into like, you know, alternative or whatever you'd call that, you know, R.E.M. and, you know, Nirvana and whatever. But by the time, it, you know, 1998 rolls around, you know, like what? is it that's making us make that particular kind of music? You know what I'm saying? So I, I think it's, it's interesting to think of it that way. Now, when I listen back and I'm like, yeah, we had, you know, some metal, you know, ideas here and there that we still like to do little, maybe sort of flourishes in the way we played, you know, fills or guitar solos, but we were absolutely obsessed that at that point in our lives in, in pop songs, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we just happen to be, you know, our instruments are guitar, drums, bass, you know, simple, simple sort of um, ways to get that across. But it's like we weren't interested at all, you know, in like heavy metal, making heavy metal. It's just that that was sort of like in our blood, you know. Anyway, that was that was one thing I would just say. Is it's so hard to say because like our influences are just so many different kinds of bands, you know. Right. And lately, I the band the bands that I hear and remember oh you know what i was totally riffing on this it's stuff that i don't even think me and eric and nick thought to mention like when we get asked that we we do get in a rut of just mentioning the same influences but now i listen back and i'm like dude i'm totally obviously you know ripping off guided by voices in the lyrics left and right and or you know like uh guitar stuff from uh urge overkill and those are bands that we never thought to mention because, like I said, we all listen to so many bands. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my little answer. <laughs> it's, yeah, the, the thing that's interesting is the kind of bands that we didn't listen to were, were mainly the kind of bands that we were touring with, which was exactly. really <laughs> funny because, like, when you're when you're listening to the record and you're seeing us at a show in that context, it's really easy to go oh, these are, you know, this is another band that's doing emo or whatever. And, um, you know, we'd never heard of any of the bands that we went on the road with. And even right before the Get Up Kids took us out, we didn't we didn't know that much about them. And so um, for us, it was kind of like we were discovering this, you know, new world of music, but we were all kind of stuck in our own thing. And all the clues are kind of there in the, in the record and, and the lyrics about kind of where we came from. But like Bill said, we we were really obsessed with writing, you know, these, these crazy perfect pop songs and then just filtering them through our, our own, you know, uh, energetic kind of, uh, you know, weird background. And, and, uh, we used to talk about it all the time. We'd listen to stuff in the van and, you know, discuss different songs and, 
and all that kind of stuff. And Bill was just brimming with a thousand ideas and, you know, it was just really creative time, but, um, <laughs> that's why, that's why we bristle when people call us an emo band, because that was never really like in the, in the design. Right. Exactly. I, I agree with everything. And, or even like punk, you know, we're playing all these quote unquote punk rock shows and sure. I like, you know, <laughs> it's like, if you had, if you could see how little I know about actual punk rock you know it's like i don't know it's like what i've heard the ramones i mean what are you talking about you know what i mean but yet people would just assume since we're playing all ages shows and punk rock you know bernie's in the basement you know that kind of you know columbus ohio you know vibe i i think people maybe think that that's where we were coming from and it's funny because we were like oh actually we're more thinking of ourselves like cheap trick you know on the radio in the 80s you know or something like that Okay, that makes sense because, yeah, it was, I don't think, and Jay, you can chime in, and or Brandon, I don't think when I got this record or, or when we heard you guys, I was like, oh, that's emo. Because, like, emo to me at the time was a, a little bit, I don't know, I was more associating that with, like, like Sunny Day Real Estate and stuff that was a little exactly. bit, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, but we were headed headed towards that sort of second phase of emo where it was getting more pop-oriented. Right. So. I don't remember thinking of you guys as emo, but it, it kind of made sense why you might be on a Get Up Kids show or Hot Rod Circuit because right. they were in the same ballpark of emo-ish, but it was really about like pop songwriting and just being a rock band. Yeah, absolutely. Both yeah. of those bands were, were big pop bands, you know what I mean, yep. NRS. Yep. I think the hometown might have had something to do with it too because Get Up Kids, they're from Lawrence too, right? Or at least Kansas City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the hot rod circuit thing, I'm not so sure, but but I think maybe you guys might have been lumped in a little bit because well, also you recorded with Ed Rose, and I know that a lot of those records from there are really famous to come from Red House or whatever that studio is called there too. So, um. yeah, yeah, totally. And 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 I'm all about you know like like now in hindsight, you know, taking a look at what we did and and then I'm open minded to be like, oh, you know what? Okay, I could see why people would call that emo or whatnot. I'm just trying to give you like an insight into like what our, you know, 25 year old brains were thinking at the time, you know, it's like, we had no idea what emo was or barely yeah. had a punk rock bone in our body, you know? Well, I guess one, one thing all those bands had in common that would be a contemporary would be Weezer. So I, I hear that a little bit in the record now, which I don't totally. think I heard at the time. Um, yeah. I don't know. Was that a band I, that you guys like collectively I, uh, were on the same page about? Yeah, I think we all liked their stuff about the same amount. Um, and I and I I feel like it's like they're one of those bands where they probably grew up listening to the exact type of shit that we grew up listening to, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so we're just kind of coming from a similar similar uh, place. But, you know, we every now and then we'd get a little sensitive to a Weezer comparison because we would play with plenty of other bands that were like actually ripping off Weezer and like actually putting in like a Moog, you know, synthesizer and playing, you know, chord changes that are exactly like Weezer. And we're kind of like, well, I mean, you know, we're not that much like Weezer, but I, I absolutely get the comparison. And now since the band's been, you know, that's like 20 years ago or whatever. So if somebody today asked me what my band used to sound like, I'd be like, Oh, Weezer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just cause it's a very, right. a very quick, quick read but 
but yeah, we weren't obsessed like he made imagine, you know, is I guess what I'm saying. So the about this time, uh, pop punk becomes pretty big, right? Is that talk about like yeah. what the label was, what their expectations were with the band, what they saw on you guys, sort of why did Epic become attracted to the record after it had been released and decide to support it? What was some of that conversation like? Well, I think the reason they became interested in the record was because there was a local radio station here in town that was playing one of the songs, and it became kind of a local uh, regional hit. And then it did really well independently at CMJ, um, and we were playing all kinds of like showcase shows and things like that. And so the record had kind of this this buzz around it, which was really cool. And then when we went out with uh, at the drive-in and the Get Up Kids, that kind of sealed the deal because it was like going to rock school every night and both of those bands were just taking us to town and we were just like, you know, we're getting better. We got to get better. And, and, um, so there was this big buzz that, that kind of built up around it, you know, but I, I don't know about like, if they ever thought we were marketable in any way, they didn't like, I think they thought that we had the keys to our success and that we knew more than them and we didn't know anything. (laughs) Yeah, well, I feel it's like we were saying with the, about the pop song songwriting, you know, um, like the A&R guy that signed us, um, he signed Ben Folds Five at the time. And so that was like to us, we're like, OK, I feel like they understand pop pop songwriting and, you know, going for radio and, you know, a big crowd or whatnot, but yet still having sort of an independent sensibility about the band, you know, and our regional song like eric mentioned was on the radio like legitimately in in that area where we came from and we our shows you know had people coming and we legitimately had like like local hits you know like the songs you're hearing on laughing week those were songs we'd been playing we had like you know six songs that we could be like that's a hit song you know just you know in your gut and just to yourself and to your friends and fans you know and so i think that epic they saw that we were able to do that in that area and we had these, you know, catchy songs and that I think maybe we could do this on a bigger scale. You know, I think that was the thinking. I don't think they were thinking of it like as part of a up and coming emo thing, you know, or that I don't, I think they were oblivious to that kind of shit, you know, but I will say they probably definitely thought about like what you said, Brandon, about coming, coming from the same area as the get up kid though. That's, Something's in the water up there, you know, that kind of a thing, a little bit. But yeah, I think it was just a straight up kind of like, you know, the end of modern rock alternative radio, you know, when there used to be radio hits, the thinking was sort of in that, in that category, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. That's just the, well, the fact that there was even a regional hit. Yeah. Like that doesn't happen anymore. And they well, were because also, go ahead. Yeah, and what 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 I'm kind of getting at too is could be considered what some people may say is like a negative about us that they they were like, oh, we're you know slightly cheesy and kind of catchy, poppy, poppy, poppy. You know what I mean? I think that was legitimately where uh, Epic saw us too. You know, like they didn't see us as this um, you know super serious emo, you know, or like you know, that kind of a thing. It was, it was all about just these have this band has catchy songs. 
we just happened to feel like there was more substance to it than maybe say negative some detractors you know we we didn't feel like it was just fluff or something however you know there is that there was no comparisons to or encouraging to be more like blink 182 or some 41 or any of those bands because that was pretty big they, at the time. they didn't they didn't even lift it they didn't even bother trying at all to change wow. us you know which was great which was awesome yeah yeah that's yeah, I mean, even when we went in to record those two extra songs for the record, we did them in Lawrence with Ed by ourselves, and then we gave them to him. It was like if they couldn't have interfered any less. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, in terms of, you know, it sounds like they were pretty hands off. Were they getting you onto? tours i mean what was their role in terms of getting you guys out there and you know in terms of promotion and whatnot um and 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 getting the band you know exposure yeah i mean for you guys like how you already had the record out um i'm assuming you guys had some kind of distribution what was in it for you well as far as like uh touring goes you know that's you know that's kind of one of those things that you know, we had a decision to make. Could we, should we stay with, uh, you know, the way we operated the band, you know, currently, which was we had a booking agent. She's this great friend of ours book, uh, based out of Boston, um, who's been booking all of the, you know, national shows we're doing. Do we stay with her or do we now think, Hey, we're on a major label. Let's get, you know, a big agency involved and then we'll try to open for, you know, shitty major label bands or whatever. And we, we really felt strong. We were like, no, we're not going to change anything we do. You know, we're not going to just like all of a sudden, you know, try to do that. So, you know, would that have been better if we had, who knows, you know, we just wanted to, we wanted to stay working with the same people we worked with, you know? So they did not interfere in that way. And that's, that's to be debated whether, you know, would, would we've got on bigger, crazier tours if we would have, you know, tried to go that way or not but that's just kind of uh how we wanted to approach the whole thing so that that's as far as the touring aspect and then as far as uh the promotion you know it was just your typical major label kind of um promotion you know as far as radio and getting in record stores you know that was huge that was really big for us like you said you know you found the record you know in a record store and had heard of us you know, so that that that's what they were bringing for us was the major distribution across the country. You know. So, what does that look like if you don't mind talking about? It? Because you footed the bill to re- record the record, right? You self-funded all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. do they come to you with an advance, or how does that work in terms of if you've done? I mean, you've made the investment in getting the recordings done. Um, what what exactly yeah, does that look like? Yeah, we still, um, you know, signed a big ass, you know, contract. It was like 70 pages long, you know? Um, (laughs) yeah, you mean compared to our independent one, which is like one page and then you sign on the back of it or whatever, you know? So it was a full, a full thing. And, you know, since we had management and, you know, um, uh, you know, lawyer, things like that, it's like, everybody has to get paid. So we definitely got a, uh, um, advance 
you know, and they knew that we wanted to tour nonstop. And so that included tour support every, every month, you know, so we got a shit ton of money from them, you know, like we would always joke that it's like, it's like signing major label deal is like, it's just like a bank, an awesome bank loan out of nowhere, you know, that you don't have to pay back, you know? So, so yeah, they, that we got to advance, you know, to tour and, you know, we bought a van and gear and all that kind of stuff. So it was absolutely worth, it wasn't like, you know, they just, you know, took our record and ran with it. You know, we, we definitely got, got something even though we had already paid for the recording, you know? And so our whole thing, our, our big goal was another reason for why signing with a major label at that point, our goal was to get a budget to go record a really, you know, proper, big, huge studio, major label record. You know what I mean? Like not in Lawrence, Kansas necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like a, like a really big studio, a really big, you know, plenty of time in the, but, you know, like I actually, I was listening to um, the podcast you did with uh, Aaron from the Sheila divine, which is an older um, podcast, but I yep. just recently listened to that. Yep. Yep. They're great friends of ours and, and everything. And when he said that they spent $80,000 on their first record, my jaw dropped. I was just like, oh my God. Like we spent like $3,000. You know? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. We did it on weekends. <laughs> exactly. And so, so that, that was like our, that was our dream was to get him to go spend $80,000 on making a record. You know, like he was talking about recording hum, how they just did it over and over and they just got it perfect. And it's like, yeah, no, we, we did like, couple of takes is that good yep good moved on you know so our dream was to to get to do a, a fancy big old record with a budget like that so one of the things that have has come up in our interviews is that a lot of times when a band gets a deal is that they have like an advocate at the label who you know fights for them but then inevitably gets fired at some point and they're sort of like left stranded mm-hmm. Um, were you dealing with someone specifically or was this more of like a corporate, you know, interaction where you were just sort of dealing with the, you know, uh, more of a, uh, like a regional rep or what have you. Um, cause that story has repeated itself over and over again about the guy getting fired who supported them and then the losing support at the label. Right. I'm just curious about yeah, your, no, how um, your end went. Our, our end was, was a little different because uh, the guy um, I was talking about that signed us, I mean, he was ridiculously successful. He had, he signed Ben Folds 5, Fuel, um, some other band that I'm blanking on right now that I think is still kind of big. But like, because a lot of, like he had like three or four major acts and a lot of A&R guys will be lucky to have one act that, you know, is a successful band. Sure. Um, so he was actually like a senior major, um, guy at, at, um, the label. And so, no, when we, when we got dropped, you know, he was absolutely still going quite strong, you know? So it it was just that we got dropped just the typical, you know, oh, you know, nothing, they didn't see sales and, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a big enough investment to really, you know, pursue. They just, they just were basically trying trying their luck with a little independent band, you know, out of Kansas. Did they set you know? a goal as far as sales when you guys signed? Did they say, 
you know, if we're going to re-up this, it's going to be th- this amount we're looking for, or was it clear? Do you remember, Eric, if there was any kind of numbers? I mean, I remember the general gist was, of course, they're, they're selling you the idea that, oh, yeah, no, this first, you know, re-release, that's just going to be to test the water. But the big, the big thing is going to be when we go in and make that record. And then that's bullshit, you know? They, they put out the rec- <laughs> your first release, and it doesn't really sell anything, and they don't promote it. So then they go, okay, sorry. You know what I mean? But I mean by yeah, no, kind of a great I don't bank remember. loan that you don't pay back. Yeah, we definitely fell into that category. I don't remember that they ever gave us a number, but I do remember that they said, if the first single does well, then we're going to give you guys the single that you want, and we'll release that <laughs> second. <laughs> and we were like, oh, that's fantastic, because the second single is the one that we're playing every night, soaked in cinnamon, and people are going fucking nuts for. And it's really catchy and simple and we knew it was going to be great, and um, we didn't get a second single. She said, You're the only one who knew what time it was. I said, I said, Time is always fun when you don't notice it. Yeah, we we lost we lost the battle on what should be the first single, you know. But it's kind of hard when when it, when a, a label is like, I literally hear six singles here, guys. You know, it's kind of hard to fight them too hard because you're like, okay, shit, yeah, that would be great for a second single. Yeah, the third video will be the live video. You know, like, you know, they were so happy for the songs they had that in our minds we're like, well, there might be a second single, you know when we should have just realized there's never there's only going to be one single. So they better go with the big gun, you know? Yeah. So but, what was their, what was their choice for the first single? Um, tell me what you want. Okay. Yeah. It's so hard to feel sympathetic for any of the issues. The uh, major label music industry <laughs> claims to have yeah. at this point. I mean, you hear these stories. It's like, what are you guys doing? Like, why do you have to be such assholes? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, make this I so mean, complicated. I, I, I think that, you know, that is true. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the guys we were in with and the, the A&R and the team, you know, like they, it was just the typical, you know, you know, do you got a good band with some catchy songs? Cool. Let's get it to radio. Like there, it wasn't, it, it, so I'm getting at is it was kind of nice. That they weren't fucking with anything. They weren't messing with our formula or anything. So I, I, I also, on one hand, yeah, it can be like, Oh, fuck the major labels. But on the other hand, they didn't try to do anything wrong. You know, they didn't mess with us. They just, you know what I mean? Like that's just the system they deal with. Right. Well, they've got essentially what, what they did is they put out one single to radio and they got the album in stores all over the place and they gave it one shot. And when it didn't chart on radio enough, they were like, okay, well, we'll uh, we'll hold off on this and they'll stay on the road and they'll do their 
their their thing in their van and they'll slowly get big and then by the time the second record comes out um then we'll we'll give them the big push and then uh we just didn't get to do it yeah right. and that, that that's what we were hoping for yeah and that's the part i'm reacting to you know we've reviewed what 300 records at this point and we'll be going for years and years to come because so many bands were just thrown at a wall it was just like well, see if it sticks nope didn't stick move on and when you go back and look at a band like Cheap Trick, I mean, Cheap Trick wouldn't have had a career if they gave up after the first record, you know. Yeah, right. So, so to, to not only put it down to the first record, but to put it down to the first single, and then you don't even let the band who's out working their ass off and saying, "Hey, this is the song the fans are responding to. Why don't we go with this one?" <laughs> and they're like, yeah. "No, no, no. Yeah. We know better. We know better than the fans know." You know, it's just kind of that. Right. It's hard to yeah. feel sympathy when you look at that sort of pattern over and over again. Right. Yeah. But, but if you look at the, the situation, like there's a product that's already they don't have to put any money into, you know, giving yeah. a band to record an album. It's like, hey, they've already got an album recorded. It's already doing well on local radio. All we got to do is, you know, put it out there into stores and put them on the road and see what happens. And and then, you know, they can write off whatever losses they have. And it's, it's really there's no like downside to their end of it yeah it's, it's not like they have Very, to stick a band in a studio with a producer that's going to have you know costs that <clears throat> could spiral and that kind of situation yeah. well totally and you know i gotta say and and i hope this doesn't come off the wrong way you gotta you gotta understand like i'm not even like a band guy anymore really so i i'm totally looking back just with hindsight and just you know talking about this but it's like i now that i think about it it's like they really did bank on the song and the songwriting and that's pretty fucking cool you know we weren't big enough it hadn't sold enough where they're like oh well look at them selling or you know we're not selling out like major major you know huge venues or whatever like the get up kids someone a label that was looking at them could legitimately be like wow they are they're pulling in serious numbers of just business you know we weren't that or anything so they it is kind of cool that they did just think that we had quote unquote hit music. And I think that we should feel proud about that. It's pretty cool. Cause that's totally what we were aspiring for, you know, like we yeah, wanted yeah. to have mu music that was for the masses. Cause that was what we grew up on. You know, we didn't want to have, it be just some little cult thing, which of course <laughs> ends up being, you know, <laughs> but it's just interesting. Oh. And you look at from Epic's perspective that way, you know, they literally just saw some songwriting that they dug. So talk a little bit. Of, talk a little bit about the songwriting because it's so. I mean, it's apparent that it's um, very refined. And a lot of these songs, you, you're getting to the chorus within 40 seconds, which is incredible. You know, mm -hmm. Tim and I have re <laughs> review a lot of these 92 That's records, which are, which are like two <laughs> hours long, and uh, it takes a minute and a half to get to the verse. And you know, for you guys to be vocal right away, get to the hook, boom, chorus, and you know, you're you're into the second verse under a minute is pretty incredible. So like how did yeah. you get there? How did you get there as a band? Well that I mean and again I, I promise I'll let Eric talk. <laughs> um but yeah it's like we were all such fans of going to bands, going to shows. You know, I love riff rock, you know, as much as the next person and you know awesome live bands but yeah we just started me and nick in particular because we we had started um the band kind of before we got eric and we just would always go to these shows and we we're like come on get to the chorus you know like you just yeah. said we're like ah come on like 
can we just rock out? I want to get, have a couple of beers and like sing along and have fun. We started really appreciating the bands. Like uh, we would see this band called house of large sizes and they were, had these short to the point songs. And so that really influenced us, you know, as far as just gravitating to pop, even though it's still in a setting, like a smoky, smelly beer soaked, you know, rock club, you could still go and, get to the chorus and sing along and have fun. And you don't have to have these, you know, long drawn out instrumental, you know, jock rock tunes all over the place, you know? And so I think that's what gravitated us back into that, which then after a while you start to go, Oh, wow. You know, I guess I did grow up listening to pop songs, you know? So I think it's kind of a natural maturity as a musician as well for most, most of all of us, you know, kind of dudes. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think we got to the point where it was like, you know, Bill and Nick had already done the, the long rock thing. And even in my old band before that, we had played five, six minute songs sometimes. And by the time we got together, it was like all about the songwriting and the craft and how quickly we can get from one part to another and make each one of them memorable. And everything was really meticulous, the way that, you know, Bill designed the songs and then the way that we thought them out. It was like, uh, I think Bill was about to mention it, but Nick would always make us justify a part. If we repeated it, he would go, okay, what's that for? Why are we doing that? Don't need it. Cut it out. And so we yeah. trimmed the fat like all over the place on these songs, you know? Right. Yeah. We did used to say that trim the fat. And you know, it's funny, we were talking about soaked in cinnamon and uh, I was, I was thinking about this. Um, the, when, before we started doing this podcast, um, that song in particular, which we just called out as it became basically one of our fan favorites. We in the practice room legitimately were like, what if we just repeated that riff? Because that seems to be what goes over really well. Whenever we see bands play shows and, or hit songs, it's usually a one riff that's just repeated. And that was against our nature. You know, we're used to fucking putting, changes all over the place right and we were like what if we did that lo and behold it ends up being our our big hit so just a little insight into sometimes yeah. trying something new and different that's against what you would want to do you know yeah I mean, it's cool. kind of a, can give you something good you guys were all applying what you had learned to that point you had spent enough time doing this that you were able to kind of learn uh from others and actually apply it i mean i think that's uh what's fascinating in terms of uh really getting this refined pop approach is that you might be able to conceptually get it but to be able to do it is a whole other thing like it takes a ton of work right i mean you guys are i would assume rehearsing like crazy and just continuing to edit and refine these songs nonstop. yeah the 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 interesting thing is um the first we we had a um version of ultimate fake book as a three-piece band but without eric it was with his other drummer um jason mott waldman really good friend of ours and he was uh not quite as accomplished of a drummer as eric so back in the days when me and nick and mott the first drummer were working on songs you know and some of them i don't know if any of them are on laughing week but definitely all the songs on the first record me and Nick and Mott practiced those songs like every day for hours because Mott was still learning how to play drums essentially in a way. And so me and Nick used to always talk about that, that it made us go over every single thing we were doing with a fine tooth comb. 
so anyway, so we had that kind of in our blood. And then, then when we got Eric in the band, he was a very accomplished, you know, professional drummer. And so it was just like butter. It was just like all of a sudden we just could just bang out stuff, you know, very efficiently and quickly because I feel like me and Nick kind of like worked out how we do what we do chord change wise. And we, we loved that it was just a three piece, you know, that you don't have like the lug, you know, the help of like super guitar, you know, layers upon layers of two or three other guys or, you know, a keyboard player. Like it was just literally one guitar, bass and drums and vocals. And so we worked on how to make that be cool on our own really hard. But then by the time we got Eric in the band, we didn't have to practice nearly as hard, you know? So let me ask you guys, I, I, you know, in revisiting, um, not just this record, but the whole catalog, one of the things that I discovered was that your first record, cause I'm not counting the cassette that came out. Um, the first oh. record electric kissing parties that was actually reissued on vinyl back in uh, 2010, according to the internets. And I'm curious about the situation with this record um, because of the deal that you have with Epic, do they own your masters on this record or do or do you retain those? Yep. They own the masters. Like in perpetuity. Yep. Um, Eric, you could probably answer better than I could. Well, the same guys that put out Electric Kissing Parties uh, tried to license uh, This Will Be Laughing Week for a vinyl release as well. And they had a six-month window to, to raise the, the huge amount of money that it was going to take just to make one small run of it on vinyl. Um, and that took them a long time to get the contract worked out. And they got it all worked out with Sony. Um, and then they put up a Kickstarter and it didn't go anywhere. And so the thing lapsed. And so, yeah, I think it's, someone's going to, it's going to be yet, really hard to reissue it, you know? But is it be, it's, I, I was actually shocked that after this much time that Sony would even care, tell you the honest truth. Cause I mean, it's been a pretty long time and like that didn't sell that many records. You know, I was shocked that when they contacted Sony about it, they got an answer right away. And it was like, yeah, no, it's going to be this much and blah, blah, blah. So I can't remember how much it was going to be like 5k or something to get it back. Just, but just to license, you know, not get it back forever, but just get it back in the, in the capacity that they could um, do the uh, vinyl. It was something like, so that's another reason why the Kickstarter was pretty unsuccessful was we had a huge overhead just for that alone. It might have been ten. I can't remember how much it was. Huh. So yeah, that's one thing that we're hoping some, you know, someday to find a fan who really wants it on vinyl and can uh, maybe go negotiate with Sony. <laughs> Either that, or we'll just. They, I say they just do it. <laughs> I, I swear, Jay, we've had this conversation with folks before, and it's totally like befuddling that labels are when they get approached are so like uh difficult like yeah. they they there's yeah. no cost to them all they would have to do is collect a royalty to to yeah. you know have some label go and print up you know a thousand copies and put it out on vinyl and uh yet they still seem to stumble over the simplest 
details. I'm yeah. sure there's some lawyer somewhere saying that, no, you, you have to do this. But like what, you know, yeah. what benefit does it do them to now it's not going to get done. So they're not going to make any money. Whereas they might have made, you know, X amount per sale on those. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. I, I've said my piece on the labels tonight. Yeah, you have. <laughs> you've, you have you've torn them. Sorry. No, that it's it's appropriate. I just I know how I remember how hard you guys worked. I know you were just one of those bands I just remember seeing all the time playing. Um, and really, you could tell just being around you for a couple of nights, like you were super hardworking. And to have the work ethic, and then to have the songs, and to basically get no support, it's just. It's disappointing from, I think, a fan standpoint. I'm glad to hear that you guys had, I think, yeah. realistic expectations and had a really healthy yeah. outlook on the whole thing, which is awesome. Yeah, I, I feel like we 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 absolutely knew that we were probably going to get dropped. You know, we knew that we were taking a gamble um, going for the major label versus a bigger independent label because we did have some independent labels um, ready to sign us. Um, like pretty big indies. And so we knew that that was a bit of a gamble, but we absolutely understood what it was worth. And I, and I think we, I still in retrospect think we made the right decision because it wasn't at that point just about like, Oh, are we going to have a career, you know, touring? Cause we could do that. We knew we had that in us to just keep playing for five years straight. It was more about, Whoa, do we have songs that could be, you know, hit songs and we wanted to believe in our songwriting really strongly. So I, I think we, we went with that as th that gamble, but we knew absolutely that if we didn't sell right away, they weren't going to just keep, you know, keep us around. So well, I'm a, it's I'm, one of those I wanted things. to bring up a really good point, Bill, because um, the, the clues to, to where our heads were at are in, again, all of Bill's lyrics and, they're a little bit on laughing week, but um, more so on uh, open up and say awesome. And before we spark, there was a song called catch the beat and another one called inside me inside you. And both of those songs mm -hmm. are written from the point of view of, uh, you know, three douchebags in the middle of Kansas who <laughs> are looking at backstreet boys and looking at Britney Spears and looking at all the fucking shit on the radio and going, Hey man, yeah. it, it, wouldn't it be a great world? if the pop that we like, that we think is accessible and that we think uh, is exciting, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff that we dig was on the radio instead of that. And so we had like this weird thing where we didn't really fit in with the indie crowd because we literally wanted uh, to our songs to be on the radio. And we thought in, in this weird kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, this, this, this dream world that that, that that might actually happen. And so, uh, Bill, Bill kept writing lyrics to kind of say, Hey, you know, if we, if we're in this together, we can take over the radio and we can take it back because there was a, a time when, you know, really good tunes in the early nineties were getting played on the radio and, and they weren't anymore. And so we, we were really idealistic about that. Yeah, totally. I, I think that like, you know, the, the early nineties, you know, like Nirvana and stuff, you know, awesome guitar band, you know, totally authentic and raw, you know, but they literally were at the top of the charts. Right. And then you have the late nineties where we start coming up and it's literally boy bands dominating. Mm -hmm. And I think we were 
from the real band, you know, real drums, real guitar kind of uh, mindset and knew that we can like pop music, you know, and sing along and still have there be actual balls, you know, like to the situation. It doesn't have to suck ass like boy bands. But at the same time, we obviously were not the correct coming wave because the coming wave was going to be emo, you know, with that kind of uh, sensibility, which absolutely we were too cheesy to be considered, you know, like in that kind of a um, fans, maybe outlook. So it's, it's kind of like an example of like us being in the wrong, you know, the certain kind of band that in the wrong time, you know, but yeah, it's like, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, but I, I agree with what Eric said. We were, we were like the, so, yeah, we were, we never had my Sharona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can attest to that about the lyrics because I remember that show that I saw you guys play with the get up kids. I was really into it. And I remember when I first bought that record on tour, the other guys in my band, at least at least two other guys in my band, were like, uh, I don't know if I like this. The lyrics are a little corny. And my first thought was, that's the point. Like, it, it's it's not so right. gloom and doom and, and serious all the time. It's it, like it's tongue. Like one of the songs says that my exactly. finger would play home sweet home. Like it was it <laughs> had every note I needed right then. So I, I get yeah, that's awesome. In that scene. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And, and thanks for saying that because I, exactly. I used to say that all the time back then. I remember, you know, like there's so many bands that had like a very serious, you know, the world sucks kind of approach, you know, nine inch nails, whatever, you know? And I just remember getting to the point where I was like, I like a lot of that shit too, but fuck, I'm sick of hearing about how horrible everything is. I kind of want a little bit of a lighthearted, fun you know, time at a show. And, you know, so I, exactly. We, we weren't trying to cater to, you know, everybody, but, but maybe some people might've heard what we were doing and, and got it. Like you said, you know, I think that's the thing. People that seemed to like us got what we were, and this is going to sound totally dumb, but they got what we were trying to do. And the people that don't like us, they just didn't even quite get the point at all, which that's fine. That's totally fine. You know, I think there's a lot of perspective because, you had to have to be able to yeah, get what you guys were in because I, like I came up in the eighties and my favorite stuff was like, you know, that all the, the butt rock on the radio. Um, and it's just kind of in my soul now. And, and I don't know if musically this record really touches on a lot of that, but the lyrics really tip the hat a lot to that kind of stuff. It feels like to me. Right. Um, and, and, yeah. I, and it just felt like comfortable right from the beginning. Right. Cool. That's awesome. I was going to say, you know, your observation about the way that radio and, and sort of music changed, I think, is spot on in, in terms of the 90s. I think one of the issues that we encountered was rock music by the end of the decade became m like the new metal dark sort of music. So there yeah. was no like space for this on most of mainstream radio it had to be like lincoln park or you know corn or nickelback it was sort of this like third generation of grunge creed like that kind of stuff was what was getting played yep. on mm -hmm. and you didn't really hear i think i hate every single one of those bands that you <laughs> and, and there you go but you didn't really hear yeah. i mean even at, by this point you know weezer's done so their contribution to this 
and and you could say in, in terms of just as like having a similar like aesthetic you know in terms of um an earnestness and a um not a sense of humor but just you know having a not a darkness to the to the music you could put you know mm-hmm. Uh, very few bands i think in the 90s in that category that weren't you know pop bands or 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 sort of one hit wonder type bands you know i'm thinking of like new radicals or something like that like you know yeah. those those bands were allowed to be that but it would only be for one song and then you never hear from them again whereas you know a right. a band that dialed up the guitars was not supposed to be like that by 99 2000 it was supposed to be a bit edgier and 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 darker and uh, and then right. of course into the 2000s then we get like the strokes and and the the garage rock revival which is a totally different end of that rock spectrum right so yeah. i don't i don't know totally it's kind of funny to think that we thought pop rock was what the world needed you know at the time right, when you look right. back cuz what what you just said was hilariously spot on that the everything was this like super serious you know dark there was no pop rock to be found i guess the world was getting its pop still from the boy bands you know yeah i i just remembered i mean jay and i specifically just like almost stopped listening to american radio <laughs> at that point i mean we have a good radio station here in columbus right. uh cd 101 and then it became cd 102.5 it's one of the last independent radio stations left in the country. But like, you know, we were like buying the NME and like looking to like Sweden right. for like rock and stuff like that. And, and, uh, we could not like find bands like you guys. So it was like really well, difficult yeah. to find music that we liked. Yeah, it is true. I mean, there wasn't, it's like Ben folds five. That's probably why we were so drawn to that as a concept that, Oh, we'd be on the same label that signed them because they were on the radio and MTV, but they seemed like an independent kind of band, you know? And so it is true that it's like, that was just not a thing. You know, it's like there used to be big, big bands that were still awesome. And it was just, like you said, all those Nickelback and Bush and all that modern rock crap that we absolutely hated, you know? that was what was on the radio. And I think that was driving us because we were like, no radio can be good. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, just, you know, manufactured crap. It can be heartfelt by real, you know, band, a real band, you know, but anyway. All right. So we're getting, we, we've already passed the, even with our little interruption there, we've already gone over our hour mark here. So, um, (laughs) We forgot to talk about the music. <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to. Uh, well, no, we've we've touched on that a little bit, but um, I think you know I, I want to, Brandon. This was supposed to be your episode, and we've run roughshod <laughs> uh, over no, that's your. That's quite all right. That's quite all right. This has been a lot of fun. Were there any particular songs that you or or uh, you know stuff that you wanted to bring up specifically? Regarding this record, I want to make sure a little, that... but I, I, there was a little, but I think that we've we've kind of covered a bunch of it. Um, like I really wanted to talk about the song "Real Drums," but I think that we kind of covered it with the Backstreet Boys thing. It, it kind of kind of laid the the picture or the, for the groundwork of what that song's really about. Um, but I, I was curious. Go, 
I'm sorry, Bill's go got a really good story about real drums. <laughs> About to record, and I felt crestfallen by the borrowed blisters of an old time zone. Cause I Yeah, no, it's exactly what you're saying, Brandon, as far as like, you know, the inspiration was just, you know, we're constantly thinking about, you know, what's on the radio and whatnot. But it's funny, we, we went and saw the Plimsolls in Lawrence, Kansas, um, awesome old school power pop band. And they had playing with them that night was or on that tour was Clem Burke, who was the drummer oh. from Blondie. Oh, uh, nice. And I'd never... Yeah, I'd never seen the Plimsolls or seen Blondie or anything. And it was fucking amazing. And Clem Burke in particular, he was basically like the lead attraction of the of the, of yeah. the band. He's the drummer back there. And he could not have been more real and just badass and rocking. And so I was totally inspired. And so anyway, so then I wrote, you know, real drums on the couch, you know, just like you're not even thinking. You're just sitting there strumming around. All the best songs on Lapping Week were made that way just sitting there bored, not even really trying to write a song. And I just had this song and I was singing and they rocked on real drums. And then I was like, Oh yeah, we should call this song Clem Burke. So <laughs> that was our working title forever. But then we were like, eh, that's not as fun as real drums. So anyway, but yeah, I'm glad you dig that song. That one now in retrospect to me is like kind of the centerpiece song, you know, or, or sort of like the quintessential song on that record and sort of the encapsulates the band, you know, the entire idea of the band. Cause you know, we were, we were all about, you know, no, no frills, you know, no fancy ear, you know, in-ear monitors and, you know, no pre-recorded anything samples or it's like just three guys on stage trying to make you be entertained. You know, we may, totally suck we may totally whatever but we are going to entertain the shit out of you that was literally how we approached our you know live show so i think that now i really feel that's that's the message and the song of our band you know that's Perfect. at least to me i mean I'm, yeah. that's awesome that's exactly what i was i was hoping to hear because uh, it kind of felt like that. yeah it and, felt, and it was just and it was like just a dumb song i wrote on the couch <laughs> <laughs> You know, not even thinking twice about it. Um, also, the only other thing that I had that I wanted to talk about was the lyrics to Broken Needle sound so autobiographical, like that was a real thing. Were you really in a band when you were like 11? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's autobiographical, but it's all fictional as far as 
you know, the, you know, that, yeah, totally in a band, you know, in high school with friends, you know, playing Motley Crue songs, right, right. all the whole nine yard. And, but, you know, uh, we practiced in the basement after school, you know, and it was just like, there was literally, we were the only, we have a line in another one of our songs, um, pop scotch party rock. We were the only rockers at our school. And so in me and Nick's case, that was legitimately true. Like there was nobody else into music or rock or anything. It was a really small school in Kansas. And so we're just kind of like outcasts practicing after school, you know? And so I just liked the idea of making a song that was like a tribute to that, you know, because lots of people, you know, have been in that same situation, you know, just like wanting to be in a, in a big band, you know, the dream of, of it being a big thing is part of the fun of being in a band, you know? So, so then it was like broken needle just literally came out again, sitting on the couch, just like these stupid ideas popping your head, but you just roll with it. And then we were like broken needle. Okay. That's the name of that made up band. Cool. Let's put umlauts on the title, like a high school band would do. You know, like there's there's no meaning whatsoever. And then you turn around and next thing you know, you've got Stefan Edgerton from The Descendants literally being like, that's my favorite song of all time. It's the best song, you know? And it's like, wow, you know, this, this yeah, just kind of writing about the truth, you know, what we were, where we were coming from is what that, that kind of was going on at those, at that time, you know? So I'm really glad, yeah, glad you dug it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I want to touch on this just real quickly. One of the things we talk about in a lot of our episodes and specifically in a couple of roundtables a year is uh, the scenes that bands come up in and being from Manhattan, Kansas, um, you know, can you just touch a little bit on like, was there a scene there per se that you would have other bands that you would play with regularly or venues that you would play with regularly, or was it more haphazard and just sort of like putting things together when you could, can you just kind of like give us an idea of when you were coming up, what would that was like? Well, it's, it's funny that yeah, Bill mentioned uh, about, about, yeah, it's funny that Bill mentioned about broken needle about how you're kind of, he's kind of celebrating, you know, being a dumbass and, and not knowing what you're doing. And a lot of people run from their influences if their influences are like Motley Crue or White Snake or something like that. But we really dug our heels in and kind of celebrated that. And the same thing was true uh, of our scenes because Lawrence was really, really cool. And we were from Manhattan and that's K-State, not KU. And so like our scene was not looked at as being really cool. And so we, we dug our heels in even more on that. And it was kind of this chip on our shoulder. And it was about, um, you know, playing with these bands that we knew were, were really talented, but that weren't getting, you know, all the, all the buzz. And, and um, so it was really kind of a sticking like, point for us to, to be from Manhattan, Kansas. You know, I mean, the, the, the city in, it, in itself is called the Little Apple. So it's, it's kind of a, a jokey name and, and nobody took us seriously, you know. Yeah, people would always be like, Manhattan, Kansas? And be like, yeah, the Little Apple, you know? And that's where Little Apple Girl, you know, comes from. Ah. On This Will Be Laughing Experience. Nice. Yeah. yeah.
And there was absolutely a scene. You know, Eric was in the biggest band in Manhattan at that time, um, Truck Stop Love. And so me and Nick, you know, it's a college town and me and Nick were always going out to the, I mean, there was, you know, a show almost every night somewhere, you know, and really cool bands from Lawrence would come up there, but also sometimes we'd have touring bands. I mean, the Flaming Lips played there, you know, and Jesus Lizard and lots of cool bands. Um, So there was totally a scene, but like Eric said, it just didn't get any cred whatsoever. So now I think that when you have people looking back, you know, bands like Kill Creek, um, who were from Lawrence, they'll totally call out that like the Manhattan vibe was actually something, you know, it was sort of like the underdog vibe. So it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, actually. And it's funny because, um, well, I mean, I don't know, it's a little too early to, to tell, but, um, but we are working on some new music actually that I've, I've been writing and it's pretty much exactly about what we're talking about. <laughs> it's literally about Manhattan, Kansas. So I, I really look back on that time period um, as being such a cool thing because it was an actual scene. I just don't think, you know, I live in L.A. now and man, there's just not the same feel. Maybe maybe it's starting to get to where there's, you know, scenes can happen. But um, back in those days, there was there was a, a scene mentality, you know, and it totally was there, you know. So. Um... I'm not super clear on this because I've, I haven't done a ton of homework on on you guys other than just the records. But um, I've got a buddy that grew up in Lawrence area, and he he told me about Creature Comforts. Is that like the same band yeah. as the Fake Book, or is that just like something that you were doing beforehand, or what, what's the deal with that? Well, none uh, of us they're were just ever another band. Comforts. Oh, yeah. I thought that was um, some of you guys before Ultimate Fake Book. Okay. No, I played drums for them one night when their drummer was sick, but other than that, we just. <laughs> We just toured with them nonstop and they were oh, like okay. our favorite bands and half the band became our roommates and, nice. you know, they were on Noisome Records along with us. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I was misinformed then. Or and, maybe it was just a and little... Probably, well, it, and probably what, there's, there's, a, there's a sliver of truth um, to what you heard because um, their guitar player, JD, did join Ultimate Fake Book at one point. Um, and so it is true that, you know, well, a member of ultimate fake book was in creature comfort, you know, nice. that might've been where it, you heard it. Yeah. But they're a really great, awesome, uh, band from the same time period as us that we toured with all the time. So people should really go check out their stuff too, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So what are you guys up to now? You just mentioned about new music, but I, do you guys are you guys in the same city or are you spread out or you know what's the what's what are your uh current uh uh happenings in terms of uh music or whatnot we are definitely not in the same city um or the same state um i right now i'm in burbank um california so i live out in la and nick and eric still are in kansas and they both live in Lawrence, Kansas now. So, but the the thing is like, so our band, you know, we, we, we kind of broke up or whatever you call it because then we, a couple years later got back together for some reunion shows. And so now we're kind of in this um, capacity where we play reunion type gigs when it sounds really fun, you know, like when something special comes up or, you know, some really fun idea 
is a, is out there. We we totally can just get back together, barely even practice if practice at all, <laughs> you know, and just <laughs> literally do do a show. That that that's it would that always blows people's minds when I'm like, yeah, we didn't even practice. We just we just got back <laughs> up and fucking rocked. But <laughs> as you said before, we we played so much that we could do those set that set in our sleep. I mean, granted, Nick has to practice. <laughs> um, no, just a little, just a little fun USB humor there. But the point being, uh, it's not, uh, it's not hard for us to turn it right back on. You know, even after all these years, we get back and we have these really fun reunion shows and it's just great because it's like a, it's literally like a family reunion, you know, with our fans and us and all of our friends. And so, it's nothing but a good time um, and fun. Um, didn't mean to quote uh, oh, poison God. right there, but um, <laughs> thought you were meaning, there. <laughs> nothing but a good time summer tour, right? <laughs> exactly. But I, I just mean like, there's no. We're not trying to put any pretense like, oh, we're back or we're relevant again. Or it's literally just for fun, you know. So, which is which is great. It's a yeah. you know to be able to do that. I think is a really cool thing. Not everybody can do that, you know. We're you know, we're, we're lucky. We're ridiculously lucky that we have people like you guys wanting to talk about our record. And we have fans in certain cities that, you know, will still come out and see a show. And so I, I think you'd be assholes to not celebrate that personally, you know, I think it's cool. So, so yeah, that's kind of our, our, uh, operating status. Cool. Well, we're, we're happy yeah. to, to talk about it and, and uh, revisit the record because, uh, you know, like I said, it's been on our short list for a long time to to get to it. So uh, we're happy that we have folks that support the podcast like Brandon who uh, make it their pick. Brandon, what was your first pick? I forgot the one that you. Yeah. Oh, it was the summer camp record. Oh, that's right. Oh, oh we love that record. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really good, but yeah, I, I had no attachment to it. So I wasn't, I wasn't worried about it getting slammed by you guys. So that's why <laughs> we almost, we almost played with them once in San Diego. Do you remember that bill or did we play with them? I mean, I am trying to remember, but it's definitely ringing bells. Yeah. We, and, and they just disappeared too. And we were just like, Oh, this record is so good. And then nothing. And uh, yeah, I think we almost got to play with them and maybe they broke up or something. I can't remember. But we used to have that one in the band. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to look that up. Well, we went over our allotted time, so uh, Uh-oh. I- I'll have to spend a little bit more time editing this, uh, making it all shiny and and bright. But um, thank you guys for dialing in via your um, telephones. With the antiquated technology. I don't know why you're not using <laughs> Skype. This is the 21st century. Uh, uh, but Bill and Eric, thank you so much for taking some time out on your um, your Wednesday evening and and chatting with us and letting us uh, walk down memory lane over this record. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely, absolutely. I, yeah, I was wish man. I was wish we got we got to the part where you said um, what you didn't like about the record. That's what I was hoping <laughs> to hear. I, I, I can offer up some feedback. absolutely um jay so this this is a this is a theme that tim and i oh uh, i know what you're gonna discuss records a little on the long side you think Um, so 
It says well, two extra songs Tony put on it. It's See, the two extra it. songs. So, so, <laughs> so, so you got to go back to cheap. Well, you got to go back to cheap trick, right? So in color, ten songs, thirty minutes. We're at fourteen songs yep. here. So. <laughs> Think if you guys uh, okay, but know. let's see if you took off those two that they added on, what would that put us at? Because the original was twelve songs. Because I, I we actually, actually totally agree with you. Bill, agree I with think you. it's thirty-five. I think the t- original twelve minutes. songs came in at thirty-five minutes. I think that's You're, the perfect there you go. too, because real drums and perfect hair are the exact closer that record needs. It, yep. Like there should yes. be nothing after that. Yeah, that's we would I mean, encourage everybody to those re-recordings. Yeah, we would encourage everybody to find the original independent noisome release because not only is it the correct order and the correct uh, uh, artwork, but the artwork is actually uh, photocopies from the inside of my high school yearbook. <laughs> wow. All, all nice. stolen without any kind of uh, permission. Yeah, the idea was for it to be like a yearbook. And, and the name of the yearbook was This Will Be Laughing Week. Um, you know, like, like it's a school. And so we literally had pictures of like Eric's classmates from seventh grade and like the lunch ladies. It was awesome. But they wouldn't <laughs> let us put that in the Sony, the Sony release because uh, we didn't have any, um, signatures. Uh, there you go. Very cool. But I think you were trying to, you were trying to get us off, uh, here. So we, we should probably let you do that. <laughs> no, I, yeah. You got enough feedback? Yeah. Yes. And yes. Yeah, and, exactly. No, that that is a common theme of, of our podcast is that w- the records in the '90s were always like one or two songs too long, uh, and yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know how this would uh, would do at that length if we did it at twelve instead of fourteen, but um, you know, shorter is always better in our in our minds because how long is Van Halen uh, two or uh, you know what I mean like it's some uh, of those. 17 minutes long. 1984 is eight songs, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, All at least albums. we didn't put one of those yeah. stupid fucking bonus tracks at the end. Yeah. No skits. <laughs> yes. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Those do totally. Not hold I, up. I, I agree. And that's, that's why my, my vision for this new, new, uh, fake book thing that I want to do is like at this, this point, it's like six songs, you know, which it sounds funny to say EP, but like, what does that really mean? But it just feels like, yeah, that's, that's a full meal. You know what I mean? That's, that's yep. all I want. So for that, will you do a, you know, some sort of a campaign, like a pledge or Kickstarter or something like that? Or will you just record and then put it up on like uh, well, a website or, or release through a indie or what's the plan? I was hoping that one of your millionaire fans, uh, <laughs> Patreon person, would uh, be so excited about the idea of a new Ultimate Fake Book record that they just want to give us a call or an email and just be like, dudes, let's do it. Let's go. Um, yeah, no, we're, we're kind of not really into the Kickstarter idea. It just, you know, it doesn't sound appealing and it's just... You know, I don't know, not, not into it. Um, so yeah, we're, I've got the songs, um, gonna demo them next month and then just start seeing if anybody wants to make a record, you know, with the idea of, Hey, you want to sign a failing, a failed 2000 band that, uh, broke up and doesn't tour anymore. Right. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. 
That's a good strategy. So yeah, I, I yeah, that's a strong <laughs> business proposal. Hey, a lot of two thousand bands, yeah. early, or late nineties, early two thousand bands have gotten back together and right, you know, sure, d- yeah. done stuff. So totally, it's, it's not such a weird idea anymore. It's like every movie in Hollywood is a rehash or a redo or a you know known thing. So anymore, like there's no, I don't feel like there's any sort of like taboos about bands being back or you know, it's like. This is just all about, hey, I'm totally inspired to make some new music right now. And I, I feel like these are fake book songs. And that's something that sort of is sacred to us. And so we wouldn't necessarily jump right back into just to do it. So we, we just kind of want to go down this rabbit hole. It sounds like fun right now. So I feel like, yeah, it'll come out in some way. Um, hopefully not just, you know a band camp link, but if that's what happens, that's what happens. You know, for us, it's about just writing some cool new tunes, playing them for our fans, you know, at a couple places around the country. I think it's going to be a really fun, fun way to do it. You know? Awesome. Well, let us know when, when that's all happening and we can talk about it here on the show and, and tell our peeps, none of whom are millionaires that we know of, but uh, (laughs) they might have some solid 401ks going. We don't know. (laughs) Um, there you go (laughs) brandon thanks for uh picking this album this was a fun discussion and and uh you've got you've had two solid picks now that summer camp record was good too right on yeah thanks it's a lot of fun and uh thank you brandon yeah uh yeah he was the he was the ambassador of this whole episode um and and I need to thank I think it was Troy Colby on Facebook who was the one who actually actually oh, yeah. uh, hooked all this up. So um, oh wow, yeah, yeah. that's uh, Nick's uh, cousin and our good good ultimate Facebook buddy oh, going way back. Colby, so shout out to Troy. Colby, there you yeah, go. exactly. I didn't yeah, put two and two together an until just now. Okay. He's a really, really amazing photographer too. So people should really check out his his uh, work. It's really, really awesome. Um, also, need to say thanks to Whitney Beeler and Davey Bright over at Patreon who chimed in with comments on this episode, and all of our Patreon folks for supporting the podcast. You can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out. And thank you once again to Studio for providing the region headphones that we gave away on this episode to Eric Peterson. They'll be in the mail. Eric, uh, that's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook Twitter and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. <laughs>